listeners, and welcome to the 52nd episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I don't like cars, and I hate driving them. Well, that's that's not really true. No, nothing actually could be further from the truth, but, but this is the impression you might get from hearing my fellow automotive enthusiasts, gearheads or petrolheads, talk about the new Toyota Supra. The Supra didn't debut this week, but we did get a look at the racing version of the road car, the hilariously named Toyota Gazoo Racing Supra Racing concept, which looked very aggressive and sleek and very much like a racing car, even without having the word racing appear twice in its name. Um, But Even the unveiling of the race car wasn't enough to stop the haters just getting their knives out for this thing. In many ways, the Supra is the Star Wars of the automotive world. The original quadrilogy, especially the third and fourth generations, held such a place in the hearts of so many enthusiasts that people feel entitled to a certain type of vehicle. And when Toyota brings us what their vision of a modern Supra is, and it doesn't jive with fans of the originals, uh, the Sith hits the fan. That's <laughs> a little pun. Um, while I'm not a huge fan of the styling of this new one, uh, I, I do like pretty much everything else about it. Even weight distribution, low center of gravity, a turbocharged inline six, just like the old one, and front engine rear wheel drive. But then there's the transmission. And, oh, I I can feel the simmering rage of so many Toyota files being brought to a boil when I mention that there will be no manual transmission in this car. But for what? The the sake of nostalgia? A greater sense of control? Uh, Let's cast our minds back to 1997, when the automatic-equipped fourth-generation Supra was one of the first cars to beat its manual version— uh, they're thereby foretelling a future where computers could do the shifts more quickly than any living human, or, or dead ones for that matter, uh, and a system that would use sensors throughout the car and motor to optimize performance for both daily driving and racing. But no, I'm a man and I want to shift when I want to, say the so-called purists. Uh, there's nothing pure about inserting human error into a machine designed for peak performance. And to think that you know better than the engineers who designed the car and who programmed the shift points into the automatic transmission's ECU is profoundly arrogant. As a matter of personal preference, fine. I'm I'm sorry you can't have your slow, manual-equipped Supra, but the simple truth is that Less than 3% of all cars sold in this country anymore are manuals. And even Subaru, an absolute holdout who refused until recently to make uh, a WRX with anything but a manual and still doesn't make the SDI with anything but a manual, is considering dropping them in favor of a CVT to be compatible with their safety systems. And Subaru's CVT is bad. It is a bad, bad CVT. At least the Supra is slated to get a gearbox with actual gears. So put your knives away, fanboys, and and just be happy that, hey, Toyota is still willing to build us a powerful two-seat rear-wheel drive sports car and is not even an electric vehicle, though they are apparently exploring hybrid options. More sports cars, though, is a good thing, 
and no car will ever be totally perfect for you. Plus, we won't get to see the actual road-going car until at least early 2019, and, and that's a long time to be standing around with knives. Here is your top story. Now, I try not to get political on this show, because this is a podcast about cars and not ideologies. But the truth is, the automotive industry is heavily affected by the actions of politicians. So every once in a while, those actions are worth exploring, if only to evaluate their impact on our favorite pastimes, cars and driving. The policies in play this week are all about import tariffs. Taxes placed on things made outside the U.S. for the simple fact that they were not made in the U.S. Uh, Last week it was steel and aluminum, uh, both of which are critical components in cars and which are rarely made in the U.S. anymore. Uh, China specifically is the world's leading exporter of steel, and the theory is that um, by imposing a tariff on Chinese steel, companies would rather purchase steel from U.S. steel plants because it's cheaper, thereby creating jobs in the steel manufacturing sector, leading us to live happier, more fulfilling lives knowing that we provided people with some work. The problem with that theory is companies that use the steel don't exist to create jobs or give everyone a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, unless that company is Chipotle. Uh, Companies exist to make money, and they will fight tooth and nail for every profit margin possible. That means that when something costs more to make, they will just charge consumers more to buy it, leading to price inflation and a lower quality of life because people have less money after spending it all on whatever they're buying with steel or aluminum in it. Like, for instance, beer cans or my beloved Diet Coke. This week, the conversation turned from raw materials to completed cars when Trump proposed implementing a tariff on European vehicles, claiming that the U.S. had been treated very unfairly by the European Union. The EU responded by saying that they would tax Harley-Davidson's and bourbon and blue jeans if such a tariff were applied to their vehicles. And let's be honest, people are not going to go and buy a Cadillac instead of a Mercedes just because a 10% import tariff has been applied. They're just going to pay more for a Mercedes and then hate the government. The apparent issue at the core of this is that Trump thinks that because the U.S. has a trade deficit, that means that everything is all wrong and we're losing and everyone else is winning and we need to be the ones winning, and that simply isn't the case. Here's a quick explanation of the trade deficit. I go into Chipotle, I get steak tacos. I have a trade deficit with Chipotle, and I have to pay them for the product I receive. This is partially because it's more expensive for me to go buy the ingredients myself, but also because I'm lazy. And by having Chipotle do the hard work for me, my quality of life is higher. That's what it boils down to, quality of life. The primary argument for implementing tariffs and reversing trade deficit is to create jobs. But that effort is doomed to fail because we have things like the minimum wage here and health and safety rules that make the production of goods more expensive than they can be produced in China or most countries in Southeast Asia, for that matter, where there is little to no worker protection. And those regulations that we have in place guaranteed a certain hourly wage and working conditions that aren't likely to wind up in employees dying, it's because we want a higher quality of life. Part of the price we pay for that is a trade deficit where we consume more than we create product-wise. 
We do, however, have a service surplus. What we also get are cheaper goods, access to more and varied items, and low inflation. Now we're at a point where our chief executive is calling for a trade war that he insists is good and will be easy to win. What we'll get with a trade war is more expensive raw materials, more expensive products, access to fewer items, higher inflation, higher debt from greater spending on more expensive items, and the accompanying high inflation, which will likely increase personal bankruptcies and lead to actually fewer jobs than it will create because we can never truly compete with our trading partners in some sectors. Especially after we learned this week that Americans owe more than $1 trillion in car loans, and we're borrowing records amount of money to buy cars, often at deep subprime interest rates and for 72 months instead of the standard 60 or 48. We simply cannot contemplate policies that will only cause us to plunge deeper into personal debt. There's no such thing as a good trade war, and there are no winners. In trade wars, everyone loses, including us petrolheads. After a wild Detroit auto show when all three big, big American car brands showed off their fancy, shiny new pickups and on the heels of a market clamoring for bigger, butcher, gas-guzzlier vehicles, 2018 was declared the year of the truck. Uh, so how are we looking two months in? Well, like maybe declaring what year this was in January was a little bit too premature. Pickup sales were down a whopping 15% in February over 2017, which itself was not a great year for motor vehicle sales. Uh, analysts are chalking it up to a, quote, continued softening of the market, end quote, which is a polite way of saying nobody is really buying cars right now. I think the best way to drive sales, though, is to probably start accusing buyers of softening the market, to which all the super insecure guys will probably respond, No, you're soft in the market! I'm hard all the time! Give me that truck! Uh, speaking of the Detroit Auto Show, uh, it usually kicks off the year uh, every January, a time when it has to compete for attention with the Consumer Electronics Show, which is increasingly a car show, as cars are increasingly Consumer Electronics. The idea has apparently been presented to move the North American International Auto Show in Detroit to October when there's less competition and the weather isn't so shitty in Michigan and car makers can do some things outside of Cobo Hall. The problem is the show takes a whopping three months to set up and there are events in the hall during those months so the show would have to scale back on the extravagance or find another time altogether. Given that automakers have started sitting out some shows, including Detroit, and many didn't come or brought reduced presence uh, to Detroit this year, not to mention the political pressure on uh, a trade war might bring, moving might not be the answer to the Detroit show's problems. Also in Michigan, the state has forgiven $637 million in fees owed by drivers so the people in debt can get their licenses back. Those extra fees were part of a scheme from the governor in 2003 to plug a budget hole by tacking on extra fees for traffic tickets uh, for fines committed by people who had more than seven points on their licenses. Of course, it's not good to get any points on your license, and perhaps if you're such a bad driver that you rack up so many citations that your license gets revoked, maybe you shouldn't get it back, but... 
your tickets definitely shouldn't be driving you into poverty such that you can't afford to get it back. Uh, there are some stipulations regarding who can get their licenses back when, but most of the fees are being waived as long as drivers do it quickly. How many people are we talking? About 300,000 people have had their licenses suspended because of unpaid fees. That's about half the population of the city of Detroit. Uh, to their credit, Michigan saw the error of their ways, unlike Illinois, but I can't imagine I'd be too happy with them if I'd had my license suspended for the past 15 freaking years. Forgiveness or not. Uh, Tesla, makers of the clean-running, no-carbon emissions electric cars for rich people have been fined for air pollution, uh, specifically related to excess nitrogen oxide pollution from the company's Fremont manufacturing facility. Not from the vehicles themselves, of course. Tesla says the emissions were the result of some malfunctioning equipment that has since been resolved, but nevertheless, they have settled the case with California, uh, part of the settlement which entails the installation of solar panels on the roof to further drive down the facility's dependence on fossil fuels. As far as fines go, a $140,000 fine and a promise to be more energy independent sounds like getting off pretty easy to me. Um, Goodyear's also getting in on the greened bandwagon and have unveiled new tires that are truly ridiculous and have no hope of ever seeing production. But it's a neat idea and interesting to look at nonetheless. Basically, it's an airless tire, which we've seen many concepts of previously. It's made of recycled tires that features a healthy moss growing between its rigid rubber structures. Uh, the moss takes in carbon dioxide and generates oxygen from it, and the moss is fed water by the tire, which soaks up some of the moisture from the road and routes it to the plant. That said, uh, they said it could take as much as 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide out of the air and add as much as 3,000 tons of oxygen if everyone in the city the size of Paris wanted to drive around with fuzzy green wheels on their cars, which I'm not entirely against. Um, Goodyear also showed off some new tires specifically designed for EVs since apparently traditional tires wear out 30% faster on electric vehicles because of both the weight of the batteries and the force of the instant torque just shredding rubber. Um, the new design has a bigger contact patch with the road for more grip and also generates less noise, which is great because EVs are already so quiet, tires do tend to be the loudest thing on them apart from wind, which I doubt Goodyear can really do much about. Um, these will be on the road in Europe next year, and they feature a light baby blue paint because that somehow became the official color of hybrids and efficiency. A study released by MIT's Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research, or as nobody calls it, CEPR, uh, compared a survey of 1,100 drivers for Uber and Lyft with what they called detailed vehicle cost information and found that the median profit for drivers came out to around $3.37 per hour before taxes. It's said that as many as 74% of drivers are earning less than the minimum wage their states mandated, all of which means that most people driving for these ride-hailing services would likely be living in poverty. Uber and Lyft were quick to dismiss the study as using shoddy and or inconsistent data, and much of it was self-reported by drivers who are sort of incentivized to paint a bleak picture of their earnings so that the companies will raise their pay rate. 
The disputes were so strong that one of the paper's lead authors actually came out and said that he agreed that some of the information could be misleading and that they'd rerun the numbers to try to improve the validity of the study. Either way, ride-hailing drivers probably don't make too much money, and MIT students probably don't have enough oversight in their research. Uh, flying cars. We've, we've all been here before, but Audi has partnered with Airbus and Ital Design to unveil a concept that's actually not incredibly terrible. Instead of the tried and dumb design of car and plane in one package, that is what we commonly think of as a flying car, the pop.up next concept utilizes a three-part system comprised of a passenger pod, a skateboard-like road-going electric vehicle platform that the pod can sit on, and an eight-rotor quadcopter-like flying unit that the pod can hang from. The concept video, which looks really neat, uh, shows that Audi knows that only super-rich white people are going to use this thing, and it's designed as a sort of taxicab supplement uh, where you can hop in a pod uh, with the flying unit attached once you get out of your first class or chartered flight, then fly across the city to a lot where the skateboard EV units are located, and then the flying unit will land on your pod on the wheeled vehicle, sending you on your way to the final destination while the flying plot pod autonomously flies back to the airport or to a charging station somewhere. As far as the flying car concept goes, this is one of the most well-thought-out versions but there are just so many hurdles to get over before these things can ever actually be realized. But the fact that these are fully autonomous gives us a leg up because then you don't have to license drivers as private pilots, which, given the skill level of most drivers, always seemed like a long shot. The Dutch have come along and laughed at Audi's pitiful attempt at a complicated-ass flying car and said, No, you krauts, this is how we get all the rich white people's money. And they tore the cover off the PAL V Liberty, which is also a flying car, but one of those car and plane in one package. Except it's more of a car and a gyrocopter, which permits a shorter takeoff and landing, which is handy since I don't think many people have their own runway. Uh, what's different about this is that they say it's fully road and air legal and can be purchased right now, making what they call the first, the world's first production flying car. How much does the exclusivity of owning such a thing run? Well, their cheapest bargain basement Liberty Sport model, which comes with flying lessons since a pilot's license is required, starts at just $368,000 or the price of a really quite nice large Midwestern home. But can your home fly at 112 miles per hour and get 31 miles per gallon? <laughs> I didn't think so, you peasant. Um, Renault, meanwhile, are keeping their autonomous taxi plans completely grounded, um, but have also unveiled a pretty interesting concept called the EasyGo. It's an all-electric uh, vehicle that features level 4 autonomy, as well as an interior that is basically just some benches and a lot of windows. It opens in sort of a clamshell way that would probably be terrible in the rain, but at least it looks neat, and it has a flat loading for floor to haul wheelchair-bound passengers, which is a, a nice ADA-approved touch. Uh, they foresee this as a solution to ride-sharing and ride-hailing that cuts out the driver and use of a personal vehicle, which is to say this is basically just a shared taxi or a small bus, and they're hoping to have operational prototypes on the road in the next four years. 
parent company Nissan also owns a stake in a media company, company conveniently, which just so happens to be interested in providing content for passengers to view while riding in the EasyGo. Um, there were no suggestions on how much rides might cost, but if I'm a captive audience being forced to watch some commercials during my ride, it better be cheap or free. Uh, another neat concept shown at the Geneva Motor Show this week was Mercedes' new projector headlight system. Now, projector headlights have been around for a long time. They use parabolic glass or plastic to project the output of your headlights further down the road. But this is a bit different. Uh, called the Million Pixel Headlight, these will actually project images onto the road ahead of you, warning of upcoming peril or providing driving tips or doing neat things like displaying the dimensions of your car to see if you'll be able to fit in a parallel parking spot, which, of course, the car will park for you. Um, it, it can also detect faces and windshields and automatically dim pixels in the headlight to not blind pedestrians or other drivers, which is a fantastic feature for all the old-ass Mercedes owners who consistently drive around with their brights on. I don't think it will help them turn off their turn signals or stop mistaking the gas for the brake, though. In motorcycle news, the Honda CB750 is one of the best-selling motorcycles of all time. And, well, that's not the news, actually. That's old news because they haven't made the CB750 for decades. But when it came out, it was one of the first bikes to use a four-cylinder motor and was pretty powerful. In fact, it's often referred to as the first universal Japanese motorcycle, which is sort of a term that covers a bunch of similar Japanese bikes to have similar specs and come out in the 70s and 80s. But the CB750 was the first, and at auction this week, a pre-production model from 1968 built for promotional purposes and one of two prior uh, produced prior to the model's actual release still in existence sold for a record of nearly $264,000. These bikes are so ubiquitous that you can just head to Craigslist right now and find one for around a grand. So why the markup? There's exclusivity in being one of the first of the first of a kind. Elon Musk has maintained that he won't take any salary from Tesla Motors as they ramp up production and start fulfilling the 500,000 reservations for their Model 3, but two of Tesla's largest shareholders are much more generous than the CEO is to himself. They have proposed a vote on a compensation package valued at $2.6 billion, which represents about 5% of Tesla's market valuation, which some have accurately called ludicrously high. They apparently see it as a showing of support for a guy who has, in their terms, produced some pretty incredible things for the company so far. And they're not entirely wrong. What he has also done is consistently overpromise and underdeliver while allowing some shady business practices to go unchecked and discourage unionization to protect the very workers affected by the shadiness. And here I thought the secret to getting rich was underpromising and overdelivering. Turns out I've been doing it wrong my whole life. Sad. That said, I have a house, and my house is a nice house, but it uh, only has a two-car garage, which is still more garage than many people have, uh, but I think a prerequisite for my next house will be space for a third car. Um, I, however, am not a Saudi billionaire, and uh, it's a good thing because my garage space would not remotely be enough to accommodate the car collections of these guys. I'm speaking about Man Alsene, who is being detained right now for debts owed by his company, appropriately called the SAD Group. Uh, he owes as much as $16 billion to creditors, and, and in order to pay off some of his debt, the government of Saudi Arabia is selling some of his cars. 
Uh, how far will that go? Well, considering he and his company have 923 vehicles licensed to them, it turns out the sales of the cars will go pretty far. Um, I honestly don't know how you store almost a thousand cars, but I'd sure as hell like to give it a try someday. But, you know, without the billions in debt. Uh, here are some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless it's brand new. You might see me in my whip with my I drive a hatchback, which I occasionally use to haul work-related things, and it's great because I can just fold the backseat down and throw in all my camera gear or whatever I'm toting with me on any given day. Hatchbacks are great for this, but I don't think I'd ever really considering using one as a commercial hauling vehicle, but uh, Chevy has decided that uh, some people do actually think that's a good idea, and the best way to accomplish this is to take their all-electric Chevy Bolt and throw out its backseat giving you plenty of space to store whatever you ha you want to take to your job site. Uh, I should caveat this by saying that you won't actually be able to order a Chevy rear seat delete, as they're calling the package, because it's restricted to government or fleet orders and is available as a $350 add-on, uh, which, when you think about it, makes sense, because only the government would find it rational to pay hundreds of dollars more to get less of something. Uh, if you haven't heard of Mahindra, I don't blame you. Uh, they're an in Indian automobile manufacturer who produces quite a few vehicles, just none of which come to the States. Uh, they've also had a license to produce replicas of the old Willis Jeep for some time now, but for the first time, they're actually going to start releasing those replicas for sale in the U.S., and they'll be made in Michigan. Mechanically, they are extremely similar to the old CJ model Jeeps uh, before it was called the Wrangler, uh, but it uses a unique power plant, a small diesel and a manual transmission. Unfortunately, safety standards have advanced uh, just a tad since the 1940s, so while these are remarkably similar to the old models, they are most definitely not road legal. So if you're in the market for a fun trail vehicle or a little utility all-terrain vehicle like the Polaris Ranger, but want some vintage style, this thing, this thing is for you. Um, oh, and it's also $15,000, so you could just go buy that one, or you could buy a used Wrangler for less money and be able to actually drive it on the road. But, you know, it's your, it's your choice. Um, in obituaries this week, we learned that uh, the plucky Volkswagen Beetle will be discontinued after the current generation, um, killing off countless games of Slugbug. Um, or punch bug, or whatever, whatever you call it. Um, though we don't know when this will be, um, as all Volkswagens start to move over to the fabulous MQB platform, the Beetle doesn't really fit. And as research and development boss Frank Welsh said, uh, there's only so many times you can have a new, 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 new Beetle. <laughs> Um, as it leaves, the ID Buzz, the retro-futuristic electric minibus revival, will be taking its place as the nostalgic vehicle in the VW lineup, albeit with a decidedly modern flair, and probably no vase for flowers tucked into the dash. Um, also this week uh, was the Geneva Motor Show in Switzerland, and I've talked in the past few weeks about how so many cars have been unveiled online before appearing at the actual show. It really kind of took the wind out of the sails for the whole thing, and I wasn't expecting to have a whole lot of new material for my usual wrap-up. 
So instead, I've put together a little ditty that sort of expresses how I feel about this year's Geneva Motor Show. Hey there, Geneva, all your new cars came out early, and it's really such a bummer, and you've got me feeling surly, yes you do. Detroit was miles better than you, you know it's true. Hey there, Geneva, so you say you have some secrets, and we haven't quite seen everything, you're rising like a phoenix, listen guys. The show was really a surprise. I'm energized. Oh! <laughs> Damn it, what the fuck am I doing here? I can't sing for shit. This sounds dumb. Who the fuck wants to listen to fucking plain white teeth? I gotta go for a drive and clear my fucking head. Fuck this Coming back with a rap, cause it's my thing And I know how to rhyme, but I can't sing Turns out that we hadn't really seen shit Geneva's like a fine ass bitch that don't quit So I'm prepped with a mic and a 40 ounce Gonna try to say some names that I can pronounce Spit so loud that I start the dogs barking Grab your coat while I make the skies darken Thunderclap, let the new cars make it rain Cause if visit is a super is a plane Long roof, fine ass, that's a sweet estate Like a Volvo V60 if it lost weight Lex came in real strong with the UX All you yuppies get your pen cause they take checks There's a Merc AMG 4 door Lame but it's still better than the X4 Sparrow 4 before, what the fuck is that? Got holes like it's been through combat La Phil Rouge, that's a sick Hyundai Beat Italian design at its own game Sedan beauty, turn on your television Tune in to V-Dub and ID Vision That's it for the peasants Cause we only care about rich people in attendance This is spiritual warfare that you have been dealing with This is not a fight that you have been dealing with flesh and blood But this is a fight against principalities And evildoers And unclean spirits Always drive, motherfuckers Rich men rejoice cause Geneva was made for you But keep your Rolls Royce Dawn top up in the drive-thru Cause we poor folks don't take kindly to rich motherfuckers who spend cash blindly Range Rover Coupe, hell's that a good idea? But the sin ass one's more shit than Crimea Wanna spend a lot of money on a supercar? How about the McLaren Senate GTR? Can't drive it on the road but that's just fine Cause you probably get one if you own your own airline It starts at one million But that's okay cause it's named for a Brazilian But the Aston Martin Valkyrie AMR? That's brilliant then it went and lost their heads. Revived the Laganda that's better off dead. Horsepower wars, alive and well. Tech rules in Hennessy, dropping bombshells. Bugatti's like, you guys think that's hyper? The Chiron Sport has carbon rain wipers. The future's electric, then the future's right here. Polestar, Audi, Hyundai, they got their shit in gear. Guigaro, Jag, and Porsche, they had a couple of tries, but I bet you that new Remax just totally flies.
And that's it for our show. I couldn't resist another wrap-up, even though this was probably the most challenging one I've had to do yet. Uh, thank you guys for listening, and thanks to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. Thanks to Run the Jewels for the backing track for the wrap-up. And I will see you guys back here next week for episode 53.